0: you zoo-goers, have a seat. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. It's been amazing already, hasn't it? I mean, you've met great people. We've had an awesome time of worship. And uh, it just gets better, I think, as we now move into God's Word and then later back into a time of worship. Well, my name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors on the team as well. And uh, it's my privilege to to bring the message this morning. And uh, so, I welcome you to this, whether it's your first time or your seventh time. We've been in this series now for seven weeks. Uh, But we're wrapping it up this morning, as Pat said. So in these last weeks, we've been looking at various worshipers throughout the Scripture. And I hope that's been uh, an enlightening experience for you to see how God moves in different ways in different people. And one thing we hope you'll take away from this series, among others, is that there's no one right way to worship. It's not like we've got this thing down lock and key. There's only one way to do it. There are many ways to do it. In fact, uh, God gave us all of these expressions of worship so we wouldn't miss out on the rich diversity, not only of who he is, but how he's made people. And I find in my own experience, when I've traveled to faraway places and gotten into other cultures, a lot of times you're freer to worship in different ways because you're in a different setting. And sometimes we can get locked into a certain way of doing things. But as you look at the scriptures that we've studied over these last several weeks, you notice God met people where they're at. This is something that's amazing about our God. He meets us where we're at. For example, he met David in his passionate worship. Remember, Pastor Mike talked about this. David was just totally, literally, almost stripped naked before God. He was so passionate about his worship. And then a little lady named Hannah comes along, and she's not been able to have a child, and she prays to the Lord. And and God meets her in her prayer, and her humble gratitude, and, and she gives birth to a little son. Abraham meets God at the altar of sacrifice. Maybe you've never thought about worship that way. Maybe you've never thought, I can meet God in the hardest places. But God often meets us in those dark places. And then Enoch, he met God on a long walk. Maybe you take a long walk in the afternoon sometime and God meets you in a special way. And and then Silas, he he met the Lord in a powerful way and worshiped together with Paul in a prison cell. I was reading an article this morning about people coming to faith in prisons, often aware of their heinous crimes they'd committed, and now repentant before the Lord. That wasn't the case for Silas. He was a worshiper thrown in jail, but but the reality is God meets us where we're at. And then last week, we saw how he met an unknown woman in her deep despair. Uh, There's an author named Gary Thomas. He wrote a book several years ago called Sacred Pathways, a great book. And in it, he he opens up this fact that um, God meets us in different ways. In fact, he identifies nine ways. I think there are more, but that was a good link for a book, right? Nine ways God meets us. And and as he walks through these, uh, it made me think about the fact that one of the sacred pathways, as he defines them, actually, he says it's our way of relating to God. It's how we draw near to God. So whatever it is that brings you into God's presence, into a worshipful setting, that, that's a way that you can worship the Lord. We've experienced this morning and throughout this series corporate worship in a powerful way. God's people come together to sing and lift our voices to him. But he goes on, he describes nine ways. I'll just mention three. Maybe you identify with one or more of these. He says, some people are naturalists. Maybe you're one of these. You're moved by God's beauty and creation. Your hearts are set on fire when you see the beauty all around you. Other people are traditionalists, and that's the way you like to worship. And so when you go to a church, you're looking for structure. You're looking for ritual. It, it gives you a sense of security. It makes you feel like you're anchored deeply into history, and to Christian tradition. Today we call these smells and bells churches, but they're churches that, that, that light the candles and you smell the aroma. It's just another way that we engage the Lord. But you've probably never thought about this. He says another way to worship God are through people that are activists. Activists are people who show their love for God by going after injustice in the world or seeing pressing needs like like orphan care and adoption. They've read the Bible and they see throughout the Old Testament and knew that God cares for the fatherless and the lonely and he wants to put people in families. And maybe you never thought about that as a pathway of worship. So these are just three of six and, or nine, and he goes on to say that, that most of us have at least two or three of these pathways, so you might want to think about that. Well, this morning, we want to look at the final worshiper, and what a great way to end with, with a man by the name of Peter. Peter was a disciple. You've probably heard of him before. Peter was sometimes called the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. That's how you'd recognize him. He had foot and mouth disease, Right. Uh, he would speak out on the most inopportune occasions and, and he would say things, sometimes correct, but often he would miss by a wide mark. And Peter was one of those guys that, you know, really believed in that axiom: if you want to double your success rate, double your failure rate. I mean, he he practiced that to the hill. He was, like a lot of us, a work in progress. One of my favorite stories is about a young man who. He's been wanting to go out on a date with a particular girl, and finally she agrees. She says yes. And so he makes the arrangement, but he's so excited, he shows up for his date an hour early. Ladies, don't you love when that happens? So she's not expecting him. The doorbell rings. She runs to the doorbell. She's she's, uh, still not fully attired in the way that she wants to be. She's got a robe on. Her hair is teased out in a million directions. She opens the door, and there he stands. They look at each other for an awkward moment, and she decides to break the silence and says, So what do you think of my hair? (laughs) And he, being a wise young man, says, I think it's about to become something great. (laughs) Similarly, when Jesus looked at Peter, Peter who started out so slow, Jesus saw his potential. And the first time he met him, he says, I think you're about to become something great. But you know, God looks at every one of us like that. You might not think you're any way like Peter. Certainly not in his later years as he grew to maturity. But but Jesus looks at you and he goes, you're about to become something great. Now, a lot of times we deny it. But that's God's heart. That's Jesus' heart. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at this theme of worship, but I want to link it up to the theme of evangelism, the sharing of the good news of Jesus. And I want us to see there are are certain steps in every person's journey. There are steps in your journey. There were steps in my journey. And regardless of where you are on this spiritual journey in this life, you are at one of these places. So if you have your notes, I'd encourage you to take those out. The first step is this, and it's always the same an introduction. You've got to start somewhere. In your relationship to Jesus, it formed at some point. You may have been aware of it or you may not have been, but from the very beginning, when you become aware of Jesus and the potential of a relationship, it starts with that awareness. In theological circuits, circles, we call it the evangelistic mandate, the, the need to take the gospel to the world, to share this message of good news. And by the way, that's what evangelism means. It's a combination of two Greek words. The word "eu," where we get e-v, "eu," and angelos, or angel. So the gospel or the good news simply means a good messenger, someone that comes with good news, someone that shares good news about something and about someone. In case you're wondering, the answer is yes. Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, they all have ardent evangelists. Somewhere along the line, they broke into the church and they stole our vocabulary. Are we supposed to laugh at that point? (laughs) They did in the first hour. I've got you so serious. Anyway, (laughs) ardent evangelists. You know, the Apostle Paul took pagan concepts like adoption and he Christianized them. Today, the secular world takes Christian concepts and paganizes them. There was a missionary named D.T. Niles. He defined evangelism this way. It's one of my favorite definitions. Evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all it is. We read in John 1, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. He had been following John the Baptist, but John said... That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John the Baptist was just a forerunner of the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah. So he told Andrew, that's the person to follow. The first thing Andrew did, I love this, was he found his brother Simon to tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, the anointed one, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, you've got to love Andrew. He's always thinking about other people. That's his whole deal. His whole life, he's always thinking about other people. He's a consummate networker. He had over 1,000 LinkedIn connections. The guy is amazing. Every time we come across him, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. He sees a boy with two fish and five loaves and says, come to Jesus. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. He sees some Greeks who have come a long way. They've heard about Jesus, but they're not of the Jewish community. He brings them to Jesus. So not surprisingly, he finds his brother and he brings him to Jesus. You see, bringing people to Jesus, into his presence, is the most life-altering work we can do. Years ago, I had the privilege of studying under uh, a well-known pastor at that time. Um, He pastored a great church in Los Angeles in Pasadena, actually called Lake Avenue Congregational. His name is Ray Ortland. His wife, Ortland, a church organist back in the day, and uh, but a great songwriter, really was uh, revolutionizing a whole generation of Christ followers. I'll never forget something he said. He said to Christian leaders, and I would say to all of us, the most important thing you'll ever do is bring someone into God's presence and leave them there. That was Andrew, bringing people to Jesus. There's another pastor who served some years ago in the U District right here. And he tells a story about a tiny woman in his church and she would walk the unsafe streets of Seattle back in that day, even more dangerous than today, believe it or not, according to statistics. She would walk the streets carrying a purse, knowing that her purse was likely to be snatched from her shoulders. Inside the purse, when she would be robbed on regular occasion, the thief would find a note that said, My dear friend, you must be in great trouble if you needed to steal this purse. I'm sorry for you. I love you, and I believe God loves you and wants to help you. Here's my address and phone number. Please come and see me. Now, I'm not particularly recommending or advocating that you adopt her style of evangelism. But you know, when I wrote that, I thought, for some of you, that might be the right calling. Some of you are called to walk in dangerous places. That's your calling, and God will honor it. But what I do want her to see is her passion for bringing people to Jesus. So the first time Jesus lays eyes on Peter, he predicts his life legacy. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which literally means stone or rock. Now, centuries later, we take Peter for granted. We look at him, we go, Peter the leader. Uh, He is the top apostle, unchallenged. The Roman Catholics say he's the first pope. Protestants say he's the first among equals. And in a lot of ways he is, because if you look at all the list of disciples there are four in the Gospels, in every case, Peter is listed first. Peter didn't start out well. He certainly did well over time, but he was Peter the pebble at the beginning more than Peter the rock. That's why I like to say this. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Because you've got to start somewhere. And you see, all of us, when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith, we may feel we're not very good at it, but you've got to start somewhere. And trust God to lead you on. Secondly, a second step in our progress toward worshipers is an admission. You have to acknowledge your need. There's no other way to come to Jesus than acknowledging your need for him. You see, it's one thing to meet Jesus. It's another thing to follow him. I know all kinds of people that have met Jesus. They know about Jesus. They have feelings and they have thoughts intellectually and otherwise about Jesus, but they don't really follow Jesus. Like everyone, Peter's spiritual growth took time. His spiritual arc wasn't always high and to the right. Oftentimes, he blew it. That's the way to growth. But what I do want us to see is that Jesus saw the greatness in Peter long before Peter saw the greatness in Jesus. Whether we realize it or not, I mean, we just sang about pursuing God, and I believe once we come to know Jesus, we ought to be in pursuit of him. But you know what? Before you come to Jesus, it's Jesus who pursues you. There's no other way. Just look at Acts 3 and Romans 3. God is the hound of heaven. He pursues us. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, which tells me God is in hot pursuit of everyone. You may know the name Kirsten Powers. She's a well-known blogger and political commentator. In a recent interview, she talked about her conversion to Christianity I love the honesty of her story. It tells me that it's real. This is what she says. I wasn't looking to be a Christian. The last thing in the world I wanted to be was a Christian. She goes on to describe how she went off to college where most of her friends were atheists. And if they had any kind of spirituality, they were hostile toward religion, Christianity in particular. Then a friend invited her to church, and she agreed to go out of curiosity, but she warned him up front. She said, I'll never become a Christian. That's never going to happen. But it did happen. The hound of heaven was seeking her just like he seeks everyone. These are her own words. Really, it was like God sort of invaded my life. It was very unwelcome. I didn't like it. Obviously, I started having a lot of different experiences where I felt God was doing a lot of things in my life. It's hard to describe, but I have this moment where the scales just fell off my eyes. that sound like anybody else you know? A guy in Acts 9 named Saul, who became better known as Paul. The scales just fell from my eyes where I was saying, this is just totally true. I don't even have any doubt. I don't really feel like I had any courage when I became a Christian. I just gave in. That's the best way, by the way. I wasn't curious I didn't have, or courageous, I didn't have any choice. I kept trying to not believe, but I just couldn't avoid accepting Christ. If I could have avoided it, I would have. There's nothing convenient about my life in this world, this world that I live in. It's not like living in the South where everybody is a Christian. Bit of a stereotype there. I live in a world where nobody is a believer. God pursued me. It doesn't get any better than that. That's the way it works every time. We may not realize it, but that's the way it works. You see, when you look at Peter in the Gospels, his walk with Jesus was on again, off again, on again, off again, the first year. And I've been a pastor for nearly four decades now, and I can tell you there are a lot of people, a lot of us that live like that. Life has a way of shoving Jesus till the margins until we need him again. We get caught up in our career pursuits and our families. We get caught up in higher education, going on to school, whatever it is that those pursuits. Nothing wrong with those pursuits. But Jesus gets pushed to the margin. That's what happened for Peter again and again. I was looking at the statistics again this past week, and it says that within local churches, among believers, we're talking about people that made it a real commitment to Jesus, 18% across the U.S., 18% of Christians say, I'm stalled I'm stuck. Peter was like that. On again, off again. One day he was fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They had gone out all night. They got skunked. These expert fishermen, they came to the shore. Jesus was standing nearby teaching. They probably listened in a little bit, but then Jesus climbed into Peter's boat and said, push out from the shore. I want better acoustics. So he pushes out. Jesus finishes teaching, gets out of the boat and says, hey, Peter... Let's go further out into the water. Actually, he says, Simon, let's go deeper into the water. And by the way, um, when Jesus calls Peter Simon, almost always he's correcting or rebuking him. Something he needs to change in Peter's life. It's a signal Peter's done something wrong or he's missed a mark in some way. It's kind of like when your mother calls you by your middle name. Now, I don't have a middle name, so I never got in trouble growing up. Simon answers, Master, we worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you, non-fisherman carpenter, say we should let down our nets, we will. Well, I think there was that hesitation. Jesus, you're a carpenter. You're a teacher now. You're a rabbi, but fishermen not so much. But yes, we'll do it. He's been around Jesus just enough to take this risk. Dog tired, they push out again. You know the story. They catch such a large number of fish that their nets begin to break. So they call their partners in. Come and help us. They fill both boats to such an extent that it began to sink. This is a memorable moment. Fishermen love to see when their boats almost sink with fish. But I want you to see Simon's response. It says, when he saw the catch of fish, he said, go away, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For him and all his companions were astonished by the fish they caught. And so were James and John and Zebedee, his fishing partners. Now, I mentioned earlier sacred pathways at the beginning. Apparently, catching a boatload of fish was one of Peter's sacred pathways. And when he saw this miracle, it prompted deep introspection about his life and what really mattered. Oh, for moments like that. There's a great passage in Romans 2 4. It doesn't get preached on quite enough. It goes like this Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? How many of us, even though we've had trouble in our life, would honestly say, if you could take all the troubles of the world and put them in one great big bushel basket and just reach in and take out an, a, a comparable amount of troubles as everybody else, how many of us would be willing to do that? I would say virtually none, maybe a few. God's goodness should lead us to repentance. I think the worst curse we could maybe face in life is to go through life with with good health, with financial well-being, never have any problems, maybe a few bumps in the road, but things go pretty well, and then you get to the end of life, and you've never thought deeply about God's kindness and about the reality that the statistics are the same. One out of one people die, you know? George Burns was a comedian. Some of you remember the name. Others of you have no idea who this guy is, but he was a comedian. And uh, he said this. He said, try to live to be 100 years old. Not many people die after that. <laughs> you see, Peter's fishing operation became an overnight success. The miracle was enough to make a true believer out of him. But what I don't want you to, to miss is upon experiencing the miracle, the first thing he sees is his own sinfulness. This is always the recognition that's a prelude to a worshipful lifestyle. If you don't have a worshipful lifestyle, then you at this point in your life at least have lost sight of your sinfulness and your need for God's grace. Later on as we sing again, look at the lyrics. They're replete with God's grace. And when we see Jesus for who he is, when we're confronted with that reality, we can't help it since our dire need for him. There's a song we used to sing a lot in churches. It's called, This is the Air I Breathe. You might remember it. Part of the lyric, I'm lost without you. I'm desperate for you. And maybe songwriters get carried away at times, but I don't think they can when they're writing about God. A friend of mine said to me, I I don't know that you need to be desperate. Well, I think you do. I think you do. Isaiah the prophet had the same experience. He had a vision of the Lord, high and exalted on the throne. Upon seeing it, the first words out of the most articulate prophet, the best Hebrew in all of Scripture, comes from Isaiah. He is the prophet to royalty. This guy has class. He's well-educated. His first words, woe is me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, it's impossible to get a glimpse of God and not come away humbled. Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pull their boats up on the shore. They left everything at this point. Peter now gets more serious and he's following Jesus more closely. And now here's the interesting thing. The first four disciples to come to Jesus were fishermen. There were 12 altogether. Not all of them fishermen, but the first four were. And the first four are always in the pecking order of the ones Jesus calls his inner circle, the ones he's closest to. Why fishermen? Because Jesus knew his message had to go out exponentially, and he knew fishermen would intuitively understand evangelism. How to share the good news. Why? Because fishing for fish has a lot in common with fishing for people. Fishermen know where the fish are. They go where the fish are. They use the right bait. They also know when the fish aren't biting to move to another spot. And the same principle holds in sharing our faith. Are people responsive? Do you see a glimmer of hope in their eye? Are they interested in your message? If so, pursue. If not, hold loosely. Come back another time in a conversation. However, the notion that Peter would start catching people like he caught fish is incorrect. And a lot of times people view evangelism in a negative way because they think of it like, catching and cutting off scalps and and somehow they've got notches in their belt or they've got they've got some proof that they've led somebody to Jesus but you know that's not what the Greek says at all here's how it actually translates you will be taking men alive is what he says here you will take men alive from now on you won't be catching fish you will be taking people alive that's a totally different picture You see, the verb tense here describes an ongoing process. It's not like you go and you get a fishing license, you fish for a season, and then a few weeks later, the season's over, and and that's it for the year. No, it's continuous action. You will not only fish today, you will keep fishing. That is your mission from here on out, is to take people alive for God. Now, Peter's still not all the way down the road, but he's getting closer. There's a third step in our journey, declaration. Get this. You've got to take a stand. If you're following Jesus, there comes a point you've got to take a stand. Peter's been with Jesus through a lot. It's been a long spiritual journey, but it ceased to be solo. Now he's walking with Jesus. He's experiencing the dust of the rabbi every day. He's embraced by Jesus, God in the flesh. By his grace, he's eating and ministering and experiencing the miracles that Jesus is doing, experience piled upon experience. He's in a different place than he was a year earlier. And one day, Jesus is with his disciples. It's a mentoring moment. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Thought-provoking question. And like students afraid to give the wrong answer, they reply, well, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. Hey, there are some that say maybe uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus presses harder, but who do you say that I am? And might I just say to you this morning, Jesus would say the same thing to you. Who do you say that I am? You think I'm just a good person? A good moral teacher, perhaps? A famous rabbi? If so, you won't worship me. Who do you say that I am? Peter, who usually gets it wrong, gets it so right. I think Peter says this and doesn't even realize it. It comes out of his mouth before it truly dawns on him. The truth has sunk so deeply into his soul. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Jesus looks at him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. Peter's declaration was a line in the sand. You see, it was an aha moment. It was the moment he truly took a stand and articulated what he believed. And Jesus honored him for it. He always honors us when we take a stand. And see, next week, September 1st, Labor Day. You heard Pastor Pat mention it. There'll be baptisms. We have a number of people that are ready to be baptized. They're at that aha moment for them. They're going to walk in the waters of baptism. And by doing so, they're going to declare boldly their faith in front of everybody who's present to say, I'm in. I'm following Jesus. You see, everything true of Peter up to this point, probably true of you if you're a believer. One day a family member or a friend introduced you to Jesus. Somebody did. It might have been reading the Bible that had brought you to Jesus. I knew a, a guy that was high on drugs. One day, he was, this is a true story, he, he was in a hotel room. He wanted to get high. He wanted to roll a joint. He reached in for a Gideon Bible, took out a page, happened to rip out the third chapter of John's Gospel. It was about to roll his, his, his doogie, or a doobie, and he looks at it, and it says, um, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and he comes to Jesus in that moment. God is the hound of heaven, but somebody introduced you to him. Another day you were convicted and admitted your need for him. And then there was another day, yet when you declared, you got more serious, Jesus is my Savior, but he's also my Lord. You see, that's all good and necessary, but it doesn't quite end there. There's one final step in the journey to be a fully devoted worshiper. Participation. You've got to have skin in the game. Before returning to heaven, Jesus called the disciples together for one last huddle. We know it is the Great Commission. In effect, Jesus gives the church marching orders for all times. They've never changed. He's never rescinded these orders. But before I read them, I want you to see verse 17. We usually start with verse 18, but notice verse 17. It's the key to this whole series. It's the key to worship evangelism. When they saw Jesus after the resurrection on this day, they worshiped him. You see, at times we get so focused on the missionary mandate, we forget that his disciples worshiped him first. Having spent more than three years with Jesus, they finally understood that having a heart full of worship Is a prerequisite to everything God wants to do in and through us. If you don't have a worshipful heart, you're not quite ready. Worship is the primary source of our motivation. It's evangelistic in nature. That's because Jesus is who he claimed to be. And failure to take this message to the world will be spiritual malpractice. Some of you, though, have not yet participated. You've been coming to church for years. You've been sitting in comfortable seats for years, maybe here, maybe somewhere else, but you've never quite gotten all the way in. Some years ago, uh, when I was a younger man, there's a magazine called Reader's Digest. You've probably heard of it. What you may not know is at one time it was the number one magazine in the world. What surprised everybody was the age demographic tilted toward the older scale. They couldn't figure out why they did so well from year to year, why subscriptions went on and on. They finally figured it out. One word. Senility. Right? People just kept resubscribing. Maybe didn't read it, but they would pay their bill every year. For years in the local church across America, the statistics were the same. 35% of people every week go to church. Go to church. Nobody questioned that. The reason 35% of Americans went to church for so long? Senility. Right? That's something we do. We go to church every week. We don't know why. People started waking up. We saw in the last decade, atheism in America, people that say they're atheists have gone from about 4 or 5% to almost 15%. We see now, more honest statistics, maybe 20% of people go to church in America every week. I'm sort of glad for that. Maybe we're going to get beyond our senility to realize the Lord we worship. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you till the end of the age. So just like the devoted followers in Jesus' generation, as the church began, once again, we see Jesus for who he is. When we see that, we can't help but share the good news of God's grace. In the next few moments, we're going to enter a period of extended worship. We call it the Super Soaker. It's the end of this series. We're going to go longer. It's going to be amazing if you can stick around. But I want you to understand, as we enter into worship one last time, don't spectate. Participate. Participate. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for Peter. Thank you for all the worshipers we've looked at. Over seven weeks. So many more could have been named. Jesus, we want to be true in our worship of you. We don't want to come to church because of senility. We want to come because we're sold out. And so, Lord, we give our offering to you today in song. We express our hearts in worship. We sing these lyrics not because they're on the screen, but because they're written on our hearts. Father God, we long to worship you And we pray that that worship would flow from every pore in our being, that we would be messengers of good news to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. We pray it in your holy name. Amen.